Well, this morning we'll be picking up with our study of the great letter of Paul to the Galatian churches from quite some time ago. It was last year we left off of that and interrupted it for um, a study on Christmas and then on the church, and I was out some of the Sundays as well. But now we're back in Galatians, and Lord willing, we'll continue on uh, in this book and see the end of it as well. But just to remind us of the background of Galatians, and it's this, that there were false teachers who had infiltrated the churches, and these were Jews uh, by birth, and they insisted that in order for you to be accepted by Jesus and to participate in His blood, and so these false teachers didn't deny the need of Christ. They would have professed Christ, but they said in order for you to be accepted by Christ and have His inheritance, you have to obey the old covenant law outwardly. And so they would insist on circumcision, keeping the old covenant Saturday, Sabbath, and the food laws, the clean laws of the Old Covenant. You do that, plus all the things Jesus said, and you're righteous before God. And so what they were teaching was justification by works. That's the heresy. By outward works. It was a legalism. But this letter is one, it's a beautiful letter. It was called Luther's Letter. Martin Luther, the the, the great uh, champion of the Reformation used this letter constantly to show what was recovered in the gospel. Justification is by faith alone, <clears throat> which is that Christ declares us righteous. It's a legal verdict. So imagine standing before Christ the judge. How are you declared not guilty and righteous? Well, it's not because you are not because you're trying to be. It's not because you have a little bit of righteousness. It's none of that. It's only because Jesus was perfectly righteous in your stead, in your place, and you receive Him by faith only. It's receptive. Faith is a receiving organ. It's an empty hand or an open mouth that simply takes Christ to oneself. Christ alone saves us. Now, sometimes when I talk to children about their salvation. They come and they want to talk about salvation. I do this with my own, but sometimes others come to me. And I ask them, do you think you can save yourself by being good? And usually the ones I talk to have been taught well enough to be able to know the answer to that. And they say, no, I'm not saving myself by being good. But then I might ask them, do you think you can save yourself by repenting of your sins? And they, they stop a minute and they think, well, I have to repent to be saved, so, and I say, you think you can repent good enough to save yourself? No, you can't. Do you think you can save yourself by praying and asking God to save you? No. Never prayed a good enough prayer for that, to save yourself. And it won't overcome your sins. And then the last thing I say is, do you think you can save yourself by your faith? How good would your faith have to be to save yourself? Do you have that kind of faith? No. Do you think you can? You're going to start trying to have that kind of faith? Even that is too high an estimation of yourself. 
So what saves you? I'll ask the children. Only Jesus. That's the answer. How can you be saved? Only Jesus. Who He is and what He's done. That's it. And that is a profession of faith right there. To say only Jesus. I can't make myself righteous. I can't even begin to make myself righteous. That's what justification by faith alone is about. R.C. Sproul, who I commend to you as, as a teacher, he's a Presbyterian, wrong about that, but we forgive him, maybe he, for it fully. But he's, he teaches, he's got all these recordings, I commend his whole ministry to you, but he, he used to say this, that justification by faith alone is theological shorthand for justification by Christ alone, which it is. Why do we say faith alone? Well, what we're really getting at is Christ alone. What is faith? It's just an empty hand. It's just a receiving organ. Only Jesus and what he did justifies us. So let's read our passage this morning, which is about how Christians, true Christians, forget this. This is Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, and it is God's perfect word. Every word here is infallibly and inerrantly true because the Holy Spirit breathed it out through the author, Paul. And here's what the Spirit writes. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let's pray. Lord, we pray you to open this passage to us, not just to our understanding, but to our hearts, and that in here we would see more of ourselves, more of Jesus, most of all, and we would be led out to know Him more, to love Him more, to trust Him more. By Your grace at work within us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've already studied this text, but I wanted to come through it again, and then getting us ready to continue in Galatians. But first, I wanted us to consider what this means. What does this passage mean? So let's set our minds on the, the meaning of the words. Well, Galatians 3, 1 to 3, <clears throat> O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So what Paul is doing here, he, he is expressing grief over what's happening in these churches. He, he was used by God instrumentally in planting these churches. He knew the people in them. He loved them. He'd, he'd given his, his life to them and, and wanted them to know grace and prayed for them. And so he's saying, foolish Galatians, this is not a castigating, oh foolish Galatians, this is a a warning that's fearful and a love for them. And when he says, who has bewitched you, what he's talking about is the false teachers. Who is this that has bewitched you? And that word bewitched actually means to give someone the evil eye, to cast a spell over, to hold someone spellbound by irresistible power. The idea is this is demonic, what's happening. You know, Satan wants you to be a legalist. He, he wants you to be religious legalist, which is a way you can get away with being proud, which is what a fool is. 
Look, oh foolish Galatians. He's not calling them a name. He's convicting them. You've become foolish. It's a proud Phariseeism that you've adopted instead of the gospel. And then in the second part of verse 1, he can, we can hear Paul's heart. It, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, how is that? They're well past the crucifixion of Jesus. They didn't see him literally crucified. This is talking about preaching. Paul went and preached, and his preaching was such that they could envision the crucifixion of Jesus. That was his, the whole substance of his message, to preach Christ and him crucified and risen. The whole Christ, all of Christ, his person, his work, his eternal purpose, his final purpose, it's Jesus. Everything is in him, and they preached. They, they had Christ preached to them, not only the gospel, but Jesus himself. Do you know the, the distinction? That the gospel is a promise that comes from Jesus. The promise is intended to lead us back to Jesus, not to stay stuck on the promise. Everything that Christ does and says leads us to him personally. And this is what Paul's getting at. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he, then he says, he asks them questions, which Jesus did the same thing. When he wanted to convict a legalist, what did he do? Asked them questions. And questions are a very wise way of getting, getting at people and seeking their heart. And Paul does that. And he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which was it? Because it seems like you're going back to the works of the law. You're trying to now move from faith to works. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? You think you can move from the Spirit to the flesh? Is that what you're trying to do? Paul's basically asking them this. Do you think you've graduated beyond the gospel? Do you think you can begin with grace but finish by working for your salvation? Oh, foolish Galatians. Don't you know that maturity doesn't come from pride, but from humble trust in Jesus from beginning to end? These are all variations of the same question. We don't start with the gospel covenant and then move to the law covenant. It's just what Paul teaches in Romans 6, 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace. We never move past grace to, to being under the law. We stay with grace from first to last. So let's consider these. What's it, what is it like when a Christian tries to be sanctified by the flesh? That's the first question. Next question will be, well, how are we sanctified by grace? But first, let's consider what, what, what is going on often in even true Christians when they're trying to be sanctified by the flesh. Paul uses the word perfected by the flesh to refer to legalism. So what is that? Well, someone with a legal spirit tries to be a Christian based on outward performances to be seen by others God or other people to feel good about themselves 
feel righteous, and to gratify their fleshly appetites, their passions. So here's what's at the heart of legalism. Legalism says, I don't think I can trust anything but myself. In order to survive, I've got to, I've got to survive to survive. This world is a place of sorrow and suffering, and people in this world can be and are cruel. The only way for me to survive and maybe thrive is to be good enough, smart enough, strong enough, or to figure out a way to have fun in the midst of it all. Then I can have what I need in this world. I can live. When people who have a legal spirit are struggling with trials and difficulties, they're often motivated by a fear of shame, loss, disappointment. I got to get it right. I got to work, work this thing because if I don't, I'll be shamed. And I'm terrified. And so I'm going to be angry. They often condemn themselves and they hate themselves for their sins and failures because deep down they think they can actually stop being a failure if they could be better than they are. But do you see the problem? The problem is thinking, me thinking, that I could ever be good enough for God or to navigate this world to get it right. Jack Miller said this. He said, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could ever have imagined. The Bible teaches you cannot actually get it right. And we can grow. We can. We can get better. We can learn. All that's true. But we can never master it or get it right. Sin is always lurking at the door. But the good news is this, that Christ was condemned in your place and in my place. So we don't have to condemn ourselves or other people. We can trust that Christ was condemned for us, that he took our shame. And so if you ever hear your heart shaming yourself, you can tell yourself the truth. And do you ever hear your heart shaming yourself? You're inadequate. You're not good. You don't measure up. You're garbage. You're loathsome. No one could ever really love you. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. I'd rather die. On and on. Well, if you ever hear your heart telling yourself those kinds of things, then will you tell yourself the truth? Christ calls me righteous. He accepts me freely. I am accepted freely in the beloved. Did you know the book of Hebrews says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers? He's not ashamed. He bore the shame. He took the shame. Who must Christ be to say that and do that? That's, that's really the point. It's not really about us. It's that if Jesus loves us like that, given our sin, 
and he's, he forgives us so freely and gives himself to us, what must he be like? Who is this Jesus? He's great. He's good. He's wise. He's kind. He's gentle. He is powerful. He is full of unlimited love if he loves someone like me. And he does. This is what Paul said. You say, oh, this sounds like a lot of psychological. Someone might be, I don't know if you are, but someone might think this sounds really psychological. But listen to what Paul says, Christian Paul. Romans 7, verse verse 24 to 8, 1. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's condemning himself. He sinned. He knows his sin. He sees it. But then his next words, Romans chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my own mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we believe this great gospel, we can become more and more like Jesus. We can't eradicate our sin, but we can die to it. The older word was mortify. It begins to get weakened, and real life grows. And over time, we can, we can get, become more like Jesus. But it's from first believing these truths about who he is and all that he's done to rescue us. So we're considering the nature of legalism, but we see that when legalism is discouraged, it is self-condemning. Discouraged legalism is self-condemning. But when a person feels like their legalism is working, it's the same legal heart, though. But it's working out. Then they're filled with feelings of pride, gratification of the flesh, self-righteousness, accomplishment, and superiority over other people. So, so this is a triumphant legalist, and he looks down on people that are less successful with scorn and derision. He says, you don't measure up, I hold you in contempt and finds ways to make sure that person knows I'm better than you and derides them and lowers them. I have the right to condemn you. When a legal person feels successful, there's only one way to do it, though, and that is to minimize both the law and the gospel. You have to make the law smaller, and you have, to make the, you have to run away from the gospel. That's the only way legalism can work. So think of how it minimizes the law. Legalism minimizes the law by focusing on an outward standard of obedience. You could even do this with the Ten Commandments. I'm not murdering, not lying, not stealing. Hey, I'm being a faithful Christian. I usually, I'm, I'm basic, I'm a moral person. So it minimizes the law. It takes out the spirituality of the law. It makes it naked, this bare standard of performance. I'm coming to church, which, thank God, we're supposed to come to church. I'm glad to see you here. But, you know, I have come to church before because I'm supposed to. And I haven't sanctified the day in my heart and laid hold of the Jesus who bought me by faith at church and loved others at church the way he calls me to and shows me to. And then I've even felt before, well, I did my duty. Coming to church. So legalists put the, 
emphasis on external obedience to feel good about themselves, but there's another way they do the exact same thing. They they say, okay, I got the outward aspect of God's law down, but I'm going to add other laws that are easy to keep. They might be frustrating to some people to keep. Like, but if I make an easy law to keep, at least I can keep it and then feel better about myself and other people. So a legalist might say it's that good Christians never go to the movies. Well, certainly we should be wise in what we watch and how we hear and what we see, and there's wisdom there. But to make that a law... Good Christians never go to movies, and then here's the kicker. Then I never go to a movie. I never go to a movie. <laughs> and then I think, well, look how better I am than all those people that don't go to movies and feel superior. Of course, God word, God's Word never says that. Never go to movies. Never play cards. Never dance. There's a lot of nevers that are easy to do. Legalism is easy, actually. Did you know that? It relaxes the law. Legalism makes the law nothing. Simple, that even a pagan can do. That's what legalism does. The true law decimates you and me, leaves us low and on the ground, un- utterly unable to begin to obey it in any of its fullness, such that we despair of thinking we can and therefore be right. We're like, it's, I'm done. Can't do it. Now, I can start to grow in it, but only by grace. But the first step is to see I cannot do this law. And even thinking that I can get better that way is a bit proud, isn't it? That is pride. To think I can change and ever actually conform. And so the whole purpose of legalism is it's a false teaching that, that relaxes God's law. It's actually satanic because it makes you able to obey, to feel righteous. But the greatest problem with legalism is something else is that it does that in order to avoid the gospel. To the extent that a person has a remaining legal spirit, he doesn't want to believe grace. He thinks of grace as a relaxation of the law instead of no relaxation, but Jesus did it in your place and loves you in your sin. One way of seeing this is to un- that legalism avoids the gospel is to understand that at the heart of legalism is a mixture of a truth with a lie. And the truth is this, that God does require us to obey him. The law is God's law, and it is good, and a legalist will confess that. Now, they don't confess it fully. That's part of their lie. But it's right that the law of God is good and true and right, But legalists also lie to themselves when they content themselves with outward obedience. And people who don't really see themselves as sinners don't have any need to confess their sins. It has been said that when confession leaves a church, so does Jesus. True Christianity is impossible without confession. A legalist doesn't see himself or herself as faithless, unloving, proud, rebellious, angry, lustful, deceitful, and covetous. They don't see that in their hearts. They've papered it over with outward obedience to feel good about themselves. They're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. All is well instead of, no, I got a big problem. I'm a mess. I do. 
pray for me, please. Because I don't believe like I should. I don't love like I should. Legalists have many different ways of minimizing their sins. They cover them up. I'm going to cover up my sin. Or they sin privately and they hope no one finds out because they're afraid of anyone knowing that they aren't quite as righteous as others had always thought. So they hide. They hide. They have sins. I don't want you to know these sins that I've committed privately. They minimize them. They pretend their sins are a smaller thing than they are, and they can become, and this is a telltale sign, very defensive if anyone ever points out a sin. You sinned in this way. Well, let me explain why I didn't. When it, when it was a sin. Let me show you, paper that over for you, and help give you a different framework of understanding that, that it wasn't a sin. They become very defensive or they counterattack. You sinned. No, you sinned. And even though I've used the word they, I've told you, I have a pharisaical lawyer in my heart. Maybe you do too. And if it's true of you, we have to confess our remaining legalism together. Our self-trust and that we need Jesus. Confessing sins is crucial. Why? Because when we do, then we can experience and see the joy of knowing the gospel and all that he's done for us. When we confess, we can learn how much he loves us. Yes, I'm a sinner. He saved this wretched, sinful heart. He saved me. He loves me. He forgives me. He pours out his grace upon me and you. But only if you're a sinner. And then you can rejoice. You don't have to bemoan, I'm not perfect. You know what that is? Or I'm not where I should be. And just bemoan it as though you could be. That's still pride. Instead, it's a grief that I'm not yet where I will be. And it's a grief over the destruction my sin has caused in my life and the lives of others. It's a sorrow because you see the good that could have been. And then you see the good that will be. And so there's a right grief over sin, but not a despair and a fear. Mark 2, 17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Didn't come for righteous people. He came only for sinners. So the first thing we've seen is something of what it's like when people try to be sanctified by the flesh. But second, consider what sanctification by grace looks like. I'm going to make a statement, see if you agree with it. It says, in order to be sanctified by grace, we have to see the glories of Jesus. You have to see Jesus himself, that our hearts have to be persuaded of Christ and his beauty. Gerhardus Voss was a, a great theologian, and he gave a description of legalism that I think is correct. And here's what he said. Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. I think that's the key point. It obeys, but it does not adore. But then you can ask this question. Is that obedience, really? To obey, but not to adore? And none of, if we get down to it, none of us does either of those. Like We don't obey and adore like we should. But legalism seeks to obey without adoration. 
A legal heart does not obey Christ from a sense of adoration. That means he must obey Christ for another reason. Appetite. Those are our options. You can adore and obey because you're adoring him, or you can obey for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To be seen. This is what the Pharisees did, isn't it? They lengthened their phylacteries. They loved the praises of men. They prayed publicly so they could be heard. I got that in me. I need Jesus. But that is obeying out of appetite to gratify sensual desires with the world instead of, I want to obey Jesus because he is worthy. He bought me with a price to prove he's worthy. He's worthy. And because he's worthy, I know his commands are good and for my good. So how can we get any sense of wonder in Christ? We have to adore him. How can we learn to adore him? Well, this is where the means of grace come in. And there's no shortcut there. It's the word of God. And then prayer. God's good word teaches us who Jesus is. And who is he? He's the all-glorious creator king of the universe who humbled himself and entered into a world of sinners. He's good. He healed our diseases while he was among us. He raised the dead. He performed miracles. He was the friend of sinners and still is. He had compassion upon the masses. What does all that mean? He is good and great and beautiful. Christ's disciples were often slow. And they couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about, though he spoke quite plainly to them, but they didn't get it. But Jesus never ran over them self-righteously. He never demeaned them or was impatient with them. Instead, he was ever patient and kind and gentle. And what should we draw? What conclusion should we draw from that? He is good. Not just according to his human nature, but the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, the eternal being who is self-sufficient and self-existent, who is Jesus, is good. Who is in all, who fills all, who rules all, he's good. And then Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins so we can be justified and adopted Do you know what that means about him? He sees all of your ugly sins and mine. Your self-trust, your violations of God's good law, your vices and mine. Your rebelliousness, your self-willed nature, your appetitive pursuits as an end in themselves. And he looks at you and he looks at me And he loves us freely and fully. How unsearchable is the love of Christ. Infinite, infinite love. He forgives fully. He took our sins to himself in love for the joy set before him to buy us with a price. And he justifies you by faith alone because of all that he is and all that he's done. And that's what this letter is about, that these False teachers 
in Galatians were saying, if you do these legal things outwardly, you can be righteous, and then look at how they treated everybody. They withdrew from eating with, with sinners. They self-righteously looked down upon others. Jesus sends us his spirit to seal us for eternity. What does that mean about him? He's good. Have you ever, what is holiness? Because the spirit comes to make us holy, but what is holiness at its core? I would submit to you that true holiness is having your eyes open to actually see. That is just looking and seeing the beauty, the goodness, the glory, the excellence, the wonder of the one true God revealed in Christ. Everything else flows from that. Just seeing him. And that's what the Spirit does to us. And here's the point. Legalism is obeying Christ outwardly without adoring Him personally. That means Christians have to learn to adore Christ personally and grow. But then what will it look like if we learn Him? How will our lives change? So we've seen legal obedience, sanctification by the flesh, and we've looked at what is sanctification by grace. But what What is the outcome in our lives? Well, if you will, turn with me to Luke 7, verse 36. And here we see what happens when someone is sanctified by grace. And actually, in this passage, we see a contrast between someone who's trying to be holy according to the flesh and someone who is being holy according to grace. Luke 7, verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking, asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Already there, Jesus is gracious and will eat with a Pharisee. Loved a Pharisee. Those wicked religious types out there that are so ugly and disgusting. He ate with them. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she was a a woman of the streets, apparently, was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. What is that? I think it's adoration. She's adoring him. Why? Well, let's keep reading. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See the derision, the scorn, the condescension, the looking down upon the sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Isn't that gentle? Look at how he reacted to the Pharisee very gently. A certain money lender had two debtors. He tells a story. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? That question is a key to understanding the rest of the passage. Which one will love him more? Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And how do we know? Because she loved much. Forgiveness leads to love. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And here's the thing, is the Pharisee had just as many sins as she did. He just couldn't see it, didn't believe it. She saw it. And so all of our sins are many. And he forgives us. Why, though? Not so we can just be forgiven, but he forgives us so we can adore. To teach us to adore him. And she served him. She adored him. She loved him. So practically, though, what does that look like in our lives? If we move from self-trust and pride to the adoration of Jesus for the grace that he's shown us, how will we treat other people? Well, there's a book titled Sonship that describes the difference between sanctification by the flesh and sanctification by grace through faith, and it speaks of proud versus broken people. And here's the, here are the comparisons. It says, proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people, on the other hand, are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Broken people esteem all others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for others, for God above all, but other people too. Proud people have to prove that they're right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people claim rights. They have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights. They have a meek spirit. Proud people are self-protective of their time their rights, and their reputation. Broken people are self-denying. Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people desire to be a success. Broken people are motivated to be faithful and to make others a success. Proud people desire self-example advancement. Broken people desire to promote others. Proud people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness, and they're thankful that God would use them at all. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how much they have to learn. Proud people keep others at arm's length. Broken people are willing to risk getting close to others and to take risks of loving 
closely. Proud people are quick to blame others. Broken people accept personal responsibility and can see that they're wrong in a situation. Proud people are unapproachable or defensive when criticized. Broken people receive criticism with a humble, open spirit. Proud people are concerned with being respectable, what others think. They work to protect their own image and reputation. Broken people are concerned with being real. What matters most to them is not what others think, but what God knows. And they're willing to die to their own reputation. Proud people find it difficult to share their spiritual need with others. Broken people are willing to be open and transparent with others as God directs. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover up. Broken people are willing to be exposed because they have nothing to lose, and they have Jesus, and he is all. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. Proud people are concerned about the consequences of their sin. Broken people are grieved over the cause and the root of their sin. Proud people don't think they have anything to repent of. Broken people realize that they need a continual heart of repentance. And so that is an effort to express what the heart of someone who is being sanctified by grace is like more and more. And if we're honest, we see the pride in all of us. At least I do. I don't speak for myself. But maybe if we're honest, we, if we're being truthful, maybe we can see some beginnings, at least, of the broken heart, too. And that's where we want to grow. And how do we grow? It's by looking at Jesus, seeing his glories, his wonders, remembering his mercy and how he's forgiven us, the hope of heaven, and going deeper into him, and in adoring him more and seeing him more, our hearts are more and more changed. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your love to us, how much you have given to us in yourself. We thank you, Lord, for the way you tell us the truth, for the hope of the gospel, that both law and gospel point us to a person, to you. Lord, help us to see you, to adore you, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Lord, forgive us of our sins. We thank you that you do. But help us to see ourselves in truth and that we're not shamed by you or condemned, but that instead you accept us, you love us, you've forgiven us. But yet to see our sins so that we might change for the joy set before us to be more conformed to the one who is lovely and to fellowship with you and to reflect your glory. We pray these things in the great and compassionate name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.